Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hey, everyone. This is AJ from the War Books Podcast. I wanted to make a quick note. Uh, before we begin today's episode with Katja Hoyer, uh, who wrote a terrific book about East Germany, we had some technical difficulties with this show. Uh, on one hand, my audio wasn't so great. At times, it's a, a little bit unclear, so I apologize for that. On the other hand, uh, a little bit of our conversation got cut off at the end, so you'll notice that it ends a little bit abruptly. Uh, apologize for this. Um, it was just one of those days where... Where, where technology is not on our side. So um, I hope you get a lot of value out of the conversation. Um, Katya is such a fascinating author to, to talk to, and I learned so much from her book. Uh, I hope you learn a lot from, uh, from our talk, and uh, thanks so much for listening. It's worth pointing out that it's a direct result of the Second World War. It just wouldn't exist without that. So it's an entirely artificial construct, if you will. And, and the reason it came about was that uh, Germany lost the war. Um, and this time, in contrast to the First World War, it had completely morally bankrupted itself to a point where nobody with any position of authority who had kind of been in a in a political or economic position of any shape or form could stay in that position. So Germany needed to be run by others, uh, namely by the victorious allies. And so you ended up with the the big four, if you will, so the Soviet Union, the US, Britain and France, each getting a part of Germany allocated to them. And they were supposed to run that part until the Germans could be trusted again to form their own government. Hello, everyone. This is AJ Woodhams host of the War Books Podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Uh, today, I am extremely excited to have on the show Katja Hoyer um, for her new book, Beyond the Wall, A History of East Germany. Katja is the author of Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire. She is a member of the Royal Historical Society, and her writing has appeared in History Today, BBC History Extra, and The Spectator. She was born in East Germany and now lives in the UK. Katja, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you very much. Yeah, and thanks again. I know it's weird talking before we went on. It's a little bit later, your time. I'm here in the US, you're in the UK, as I just mentioned. So appreciate you um, burning the, uh, not the midnight oil, but maybe the, <laughs> not, the later Not just yet, but, 
not far <laughs> off. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Uh, well, your book, so this is a really interesting book to me. Um, so I was born in 1992. So I've never even been alive when East Germany um, was, was around. And it's always just seemed so fascinating to me that, that to, there were two Germanys that, um, that, that existed side by side. And East Germany especially has, has always fascinated me. So I'm really glad you, you wrote this book and, and you're here to talk about it. First question I like people to, to, to answer when they come on the show, even though it's very clear in the subtitle of your book, but could you just talk about what is your book about in your own words? Um, so the book is a, a general history of East Germany going all the way from its foundations. And actually, I started a little bit before 1949 when the state was founded, all the way to the end, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, and then reunification of both of the German states um, into one state, which it still is today, uh, in 1990. Um, and I wanted to do this really from the point of view of the people that lived in East Germany themselves. So um, that, that was important to me, but in a way that was understandable and comprehensible uh, for people who did not live in East Germany and sort of don't really have any experiences themselves of, of that world that they beyond the wall, so to speak. So um, that's the, the overall approach that I took to, to this history of East Germany. Yeah. And you write about in your book, I think you were four or five when the Berlin Wall came down. What's your, I guess, just first, like, what are your personal, what are your memories of that, of that time period of growing up in East Germany? And again, you're a child, so it's not like you have like this um, informed analysis of the world, but what can you just tell us about growing up in East Germany for a short period of time? Yeah, so as you have said, I was only a small child when the Berlin Wall fell, um, so four years old then, and then five years old when the, when the state was dissolved year later and I only really have one uh, very clear memory of that I've got several you know like you've got sort of hazy childhood memories of, of what it was like to be in kindergarten and going on holidays and things like that but my one clear and abiding memory of I've mentioned this in the book as well is actually of the last day of the of the republic so to speak so the day of the republic was the the 7th of October it was kind of the, the national holiday if you will and because you got the day off for that um, my parents on the last one in 1989 decided to just go on a family day out as, as you would I suppose you know equivalent to sort of 4th of July sort of thing and we went to Berlin to go up on the TV tower which is probably the most famous landmark of Berlin still because it has a really it's really high obviously very tall um, I think still the tallest building in in Germany today um, and there's a viewing platform at the top so like a rotating restaurant kind of place where you can look down over Berlin and uh, we were up there and I sort of remember looking down and, and being just amazed at this miniature city sort of unfolding uh, you know below and it all looked like little toy cars and little toy people to me um, and I turned around to my to my dad who was buying drinks in the there was a restaurant in the like a bar in the center of the of the viewing platform um, and he just ignored me, basically, in all of my babblings um, until I looked down and spotted some police cars. And I said, oh, look, there's police cars. And suddenly he went all white in the face and turned around and looked down and, and realized, actually, these were, were barrack police, like military type police, basically armed policemen. 
um, and that all those people that I've been talking about uh, were protesters who were out there in their, in their tens of thousands uh, demonstrating against the state and against the sort of existing regime and, and wanting change. And there was no telling how the police and the authorities would respond to that. And at that moment, I, I sensed my father, who never you know, gets into a, <laughs> into a panic over anything, there's always sort of, you know, in your child's mind, always knows everything, always knows the way forward. There's never a problem that your parents can't solve. Panic uh, at that moment. And he just grabbed me and, and my mother and, and kind of dragged us back into the lift. We went back down, went into, into the car and drove home. And on the way home, my parents were sort of talking very excitedly, uh, both with excitement and with, with fear, really, about what was going to happen. Um, and that, that was really the last sort of few days that the state's existence still had in it before it collapsed on the, on the 9th of November when the Berlin Wall uh, was opened up. And that is a very clear abiding memory in my mind because it is, is this kind of sense of, you know, as I say, like a mix of feeling feelings, really excitement, but also uncertainty about what's going to happen next. And that, that sort of stuck with me and lingered with me. Yeah. And you, I think you're right too. Your dad was, uh, he was in the Air Force. Is that right? Yeah, he was an now, officer in the, in the Air Force. Yeah. Now, did, what, what was he, I mean, uncertainty to, to be in the military um, at a very uncertain time seems like a very, could be a very frightening thing. Do you recall anything he said that, that made you think maybe he was a little scared about the direction things were going in East Germany or was fear not really, uh, you know, was, was that not something that calculated into to his assessment of the situation? How did your dad feel about the, his state collapsing? Well, I think at that sort of particular moment, it was mostly uncertainty because, um, you know, his, his job was directly dependent on the state that, that it was part of, really, in terms of, you know, being being part of the military means your salary is basically paid by the state and your, your position only exists um, if the state does. And so there wasn't really any indication as to where things were going, whether, you know, there was going to be some sort of reform or whether the state would collapse entirely and if that happened what would happen to your livelihood and therefore to your to your family neither of my parents were particularly political so they didn't feel particularly uh, I would say neither aggrieved nor particularly uh, sort of overly joyful either not they weren't part of, of those kind of you know really iconic pictures now that that we have in our minds of people sort of climbing over the wall when it mm-hmm. when it was finally dad wasn't dangling his legs over the no <laughs> so, you know like most people i would say they they sort of you know sat and, and watched those events unfold at home and, and were mostly concerned with their own lives as to what would happen to them and and to to me obviously being a young child at home my mother was also pregnant at the time with my sister um so they were i think mostly kind of very existential basic concerns around you know, what would happen to the family and, and to him in particular, but not really a sense of either relief or anger or, or grief or whatever in terms of the actual existence of the state. They they adapted very quickly to the sort of new conditions afterwards as well. I don't, I don't remember a sense of sort of nos- nostalgia or anything like that towards the, the state that they had lived in. It was mostly a question of, well, it's gone now. You just got to kind of adapt to what's there. Um, and as most people I think did, they, they kind of did the same thing. Well, take us 
well, let's dive into the history. Take us to the uh, the birth of East Germany. Immediately after the war, how did East Germany come to exist? So it's worth pointing out that it's a direct result of the Second World War. It just wouldn't exist without that. So it's an entirely artificial construct, if you will. And, and the reason it came about was that uh, Germany lost the war. Um, and this time, in contrast to the First World War, it had completely morally bankrupted itself to a point where nobody with any position of authority who had kind of been in a in a political or economic position of any shape or form could stay in that position. So Germany needed to be run by others, uh, namely by the victorious allies. And so you ended up with the the big four, if you will, so the Soviet Union, the US, Britain and France, each getting a part of Germany allocated to them. And they were supposed to run that part until the Germans could be trusted again to form their own government and until kind of the good Germans, so to speak, had been found. So people who were in resistance or hadn't kind of been involved with the Nazi regime until they could be found, the German people could be re-educated and, and democratised and, you know, sort of trusted to run their own country again without invading their neighbours. And and that was kind of the logic behind that. It wasn't supposed to be a permanent split. So this was really just because, you know, it's a huge undertaking for another state's military to come into a foreign country and then run it. And especially as big as Germany was, um, that was massive. The logistics alone, all of these countries had exhausted themselves in the in the war as well. Um, and so it was just a share of the burden, really, rather than a permanent uh, sort of split of Germany. But over the next sort of from 1945, when the war ended to 1949, over those four years, the the two sort of emerging systems of capitalism and communism began to sort of crystallize into what was then, you know, slowly becoming the Cold War. And each of the each of the two sides was beginning to run Germany, their zone of Germany in their own image. And so the the sort of divide between the different zones that wasn't supposed to be there at all, never mind permanent, sort of eventually cemented into the formation of two different states in 1949, West Germany, kind of the, the combination of the other three zones, so of, of France, Britain and the US, kind of merging their zones together. And then the East East Germany is was the, the Soviet zone of occupation uh, formed as a, as a state. And people often also forget that as a result of that, it's just one part of four and not one of two. Um, we kind of like to think in, in halves or in, in sort of polar opposites. And we think of East and West Germany as sort of mirror images of each other, kind of, you know, one communist, one capitalist, one good, one bad, uh, one black, one white sort of thing. And actually, you know, it's a much smaller part. It's got a smaller population, uh, only 18 million at the time. For most of its existence, only 16 million people lived there. smaller than, than the... the... Um, than Western Germany. Yeah, um, you absolutely. just gave the numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And also in terms of its economic power, the, the powerhouse really that makes the German economy the German economy, namely its industry, its steel, its coal, are all in the West. Um, and so from Stalin's point of view, he'd really sort of drawn the, the short straw when it came to his zone. And he was actually quite reluctant to accept that fact in the end that Germany was divided simply because the the resources that he needed out of Germany to uh, sort of rebuild his own country were largely in the West. 
I found that so fascinating that Stalin didn't actually want an East Germany. He would have preferred a unified neutral Germany, which really kind of, I kind of blew my mind a little bit. Well, there is a there is a debate about that in academia. It depends how how seriously you you take what Stalin said, both internally and externally, on this. I think to me that makes sense, and that's why I stuck with that debate because basically Stalin had this really odd relationship with Germany. It's really like a love hate relationship to some extent. I mean, you would imagine or you would think at that point having just fought virtually a, a genocidal existential war where Germany was going to in the end virtually eradicate the entire sort of Slavic population including the Soviet Union at least enslave them and then eventually probably work or starve them to death that's certainly where it was going millions of people died on the Soviet side huge losses over 20 million people Um, you would have thought at that point that there was a really fundamental hatred there towards um, you know the Germans and that's certainly very true on the part of the soldiers and and sort of the Red Army, you see the, the excesses of violence with which they conduct their their sort of conquests and their defeat of Germany. But it isn't quite true for Stalin. There is that, and you, you also get phrases from him that, you know, that express that sort of hatred. But on the flip side, he keeps talking about Beethoven and Goethe and all the kind of, you know, sort of famous poets and, and composers and, and other people from Germany because he's got this really high regard of German culture um, or what he perceives to be German culture as well. And so there's always this kind of feeling that, yes, the Slavic people, so the Eastern European people, should be part of the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union. So there, there was, you know, for a long time a plan to, to sort of hold influence over Poland and, and Czechoslovakia and so on. Um, but with Germany, there was always a sense that they're different people. That's part of the West. It makes no sense. They're, they're not people that you enslave and that you keep down. Um, they're like somebody that you look in the eye and deal with. There's, there's almost this kind of respect there that he doesn't hold for uh, for fellow Slavic people that, that should be part of the sort of Russian orbit. You still see this to some extent today with the way that Putin acts in Europe as well. Um, there, there's always this kind of sense, uh, or it certainly has been in, in Moscow, that, that fellow Slavic people are kind of the, the sphere of influence of Moscow, whilst the West isn't. Um, so that's a cultural argument. But even from an economic point of view, um, the, the northeast that Stalin basically got with his zone is fairly flat, very agrarian, has always kind of struggled really to, to follow in the in the sort of same developments that, that many other German regions have seen since the industrial era and so in terms of for, for him to rebuild his own country he did need things that could only come from the western zone and initially when it wasn't divided into two germanys uh, some of that industrial output was actually sent stalin's way and so I, I took that quite seriously when in 1952 he even offers again to reunify germany and says the only thing he really wants is that it isn't dangerous he doesn't want it to be a military state and as west germany under conrad adenauer forges a very, very close relationship with the United States and starts rearming slowly, but but definitely, and then eventually becomes part of NATO. Um, Stalin basically, when that begins to become obvious, Stalin panics at that point and kind of quickly offers reunification because he says maybe that's the only way around that, to not have German soldiers once again, you know, sort of on his doorstep. He'd rather give up his part of Germany to make that happen if that was a possibility. It was never realistic and he might he may well have known that as well in his own sort of heart of hearts. 
but I do think that that he would rather have seen that solution. Talk a little bit about how East Germans, how how people felt that that now they're living in this new country called East Germany. Um, you write about there was, and this is I think pretty well known. There's a lot of violence that in, initially right after the war ended, um, a lot of violence perpetrated by Russian soldiers who were occupying, um, which left a lot of resentment. Tell us a little bit about kind of the first maybe five years of East Germany and how how people felt about living in this new state. Well, I think there was a degree of of resentment when it comes to the their relationship with the Soviets, really. I mean, when you think that the U.S. was was sending loads of money, you know, in form of martial aid, basically, into West Germany, and there was a sense that they would be allowed to rebuild um, under kind of Western guardianship and, and, you know, even rearm, that relationship is completely different uh, between the Soviet Union and East Germany, where there's a really strong feeling that they're being occupied and they're being suppressed rather than you know sort of developing some sort of form of partnership even though the german communists who are now running the state have got that sort of admiration for the soviet union um most of the people don't and they sense that as well the leadership so they for instance they make a huge effort to hide the fact that they have very close links to russia most of them actually spent the war in the soviet union and and uh, sort of you know went there during the 1930s to flee from the nazis and then spent the war in, in the Soviet Union, sort of really cozying up to, to Stalin and, and making themselves useful to Stalin. They come back and they try and hide that fact. That's never a known thing that doesn't get discussed. There's one member um, of this kind of communist group that gets sent back from, from the Soviet Union to, to set up uh, structures in the Soviet zone of occupation in Germany, whose name was Vladimir uh, Leonard, um, because his mother was such a big communist that despite the fact that she was German, she called her son Vladimir in, in honor of Lenin. Um, and he was actually asked to change his name to Wolfgang because, you know, it was felt that even having this kind of Russian sounding name would give people too much of an inclination as to just how close they were in terms of their, their own links to the Soviet Union. Many, many people, Eric Mielke, who later, who later uh, runs the Stasi, uh, was actually trained in Moscow as a as a terrorist and in, in sort of um, sabotage and, and things like that, and then spent the war part of the war in Spain during the Spanish Civil War um, and on in the in in France and occupied France. So again, you know, close links to to the Soviet Union and and that's something that people sense. And there's all there's always a degree of, you know, seeing these people as traitors. Um, where were they during the war? Even if you don't see them as traitors, you still think you've just gone through something quite horrendous. Um, you know, especially the, as you just mentioned, the occupation was particularly uh, brutal and the, and the conquest of the Soviet Union in the East. Um, they experienced none of this and they come back to a population that they last saw, you know, in, in the early 1930s before the Nazis came to power. And, and th- there's a huge gulf as a result between the leaders and and their people because they've they haven't had that shared experience they haven't gone through the same thing um so people quite rightly say to them well you know i was starving i was bombed i was raped I, people were murdered 
where were you during that time? And, you know, and then to try for these people to try and come back basically on behalf of Soviet Russia, of the Soviet Union, um, to set up communism in a country that has been heavily Nazified. I mean, let's not forget that a lot of people actually supported the Nazis as well. And that didn't just go away in 1945. It did for many, but certainly not for everybody. And there was hostility. That's something that I think is so interesting in, in such a, uh, just thinking about how 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 an occupier now runs a country that like you just said like overnight it's not like people stopped believing in nazi ideology and all of a sudden we're we're communists or you know mm. at least not nazis and to me that especially people coming back and who had, had fought in the war and it seems like just like such a complicated tragic way to live maybe is is the right way to put it what what do you know about veterans who who would come back and I don't know how were how were they treated in the the new East Germany? Well, it was really difficult for them because you mean German sort of war who veterans fought on the Nazi yeah German soldiers who fought and then were imprisoned yeah. and then came back to East Germany. I mean, first of all, the problem was that a lot of them didn't come back for a long time. Um, the Soviet Union kept us prisoners of war much longer than than the western allies because again because it needed them and and it kind of felt that that was fair game given that you know what they did to them um and so they basically kept them often for years and years and the a huge batch mostly kind of the last people that were released uh, was in 1955 that's 10 years after the end of the war so if you were captured say at stalingrad in 1943 you know that's 12 years of of working in a quarry somewhere in you know georgia or whatever so that they they weren't the same people anymore many people came back completely changed Uh, their wives often didn't know whether they were still alive so many of them you know literally be married or or you know founded new families because they didn't know that they were still there Uh, and really awkward situations came about when you know when soldiers obviously then came back and even if that wasn't the case, these people were, men were, were broken. I mean, the Eastern Front was was a horrific place to be. And, you know, for, for that to, to come back, having lost the war, having committed the, the crimes that they committed collectively um, on the Eastern Front, you know, there was nobody waiting for them, patting them on the shoulder and saying, well done, but quite the opposite. And then on top of that, their wives had sort of learned to cope by themselves in the in these horrific sort of months and years after the the war they'd started to you know barter on the black markets uh, their kids had grown up incredibly fast so if you know if you had a small child and then they had to sort of help out their their mothers finding food and and firewood and all sorts of things you know they could cope it by the end of it without the the father basically coming home and then this drunken you know quite often really dependent on alcohol to cope with things um, broken physically and mentally broken man would come home. It really did did horrific harm to to family structures and, and society on the whole. And another thing that is particular to East Germany, uh, more so than West Germany, is that Germany lost a lot of territory in the East, particularly in sort of areas that are now Poland, because Poland was shifted westwards, basically with its new borders, so that the Soviet Union could get a large chunk of what was eastern Poland. Uh, that was compensated for by taking a, a chunk away from Germany and giving it to Poland so that the country was basically shifted westwards. 
And then the decision was made that everybody who was German in those areas needed to move out of there. So that we're talking 12 million people. You know, as I, as I just said, the, the GDR, the population of 18 million people. So 12 million people are coming out of uh, Eastern Europe, Germans, uh, but had always lived there in East Prussia and elsewhere along the Baltic coast, um, are sent to East Germany now, come with nothing because all of their, their stuff had been left behind. Um, and most of them arrive in East Germany rather than West, West Germany to the point where you have a quarter of the population made up of these uh, refugees that arrive with nothing and are just kind of allocated housing and things. So you have a society that is deeply disrupted, deeply disturbed, deeply hostile and suspicious of one another, run by a, a small group of communists who'd not spent the last 12 years with them and are also completely detached from what was going on. So it's a, it's a really dysfunctional state to start with. Did communism ever, in the, the whole history of East Germany, did communism ever really take root? Did most people start identifying with that ideology? Uh, it's an interesting question because to start with, I think a lot of people did, not necessarily outright communism, but certainly a form of socialism. People sort of believed that there should be a better way of doing things. And it's, it's I think, quite understandable when you look at where they've just come from. They've just gone through... 12 years of Nazism. Before that, they had the Great Depression, um, you know, after the Wall Street crash, which hit Germany as hard as it did the US. Before that, you had complete instability and economic chaos under the Weimar Republic with hyperinflation. You know, people will know these pictures of, of sort of banknotes being, you know, sort of carried around in wheelbarrows and stuff. Um, and before that, it was the First World War, which was also a huge catastrophe, wiping out an, uh, an entire generation and, and also a total war situation that completely wrecked the country to the point of, you know, people being people starving and, and diseases breaking out. So we're talking now really two, three generations of complete chaos. And people were looking for common denominators. They quickly arrive at the idea that it's German militarism and sort of the elites um, doing that to the people. Um, and so to many people, socialism seemed the obvious answer at that point when you have a sort of working class driven government that looks after the, the common man, so to speak. And, and the country is sort of run by by little people rather than the elites and in a, in a deliberately and explicitly anti-fascist state. That's kind of the, the foundation dogma of, of the GDR of, of East Germany is that it wants to be an anti-fascist state um, and uses this terminology very strongly. Um, so the people, not everybody, of course, but many people did actually think that this might be a chance to build a better Germany that would do better than all of that stuff that is really in living memory at that point. Um, and there are even people who move over from West Germany to uh, East Germany in those early sort of years, um, you know, from from sort of poets and thinkers to um, to workers, not not as many as go the other way and flee. Um, but you do have people kind of genuinely believing in that idea to start with. Well, talking about people fleeing, I know your book is is beyond the wall, but for just a minute, I'm going to ask about the wall. So could you just tell tell the audience the, the reasons for, for the Berlin Wall, why it went up? And then I'm curious um, just how people felt about the wall going up in Berlin. Yeah, so people associate the country with the Berlin Wall, and, and quite rightly so. I mean, it is a huge factor, the fact that you couldn't leave and were sort of, um, you know, shut off from, from, from the Western world. 
Um, but it was only built in 1961. So, you know, the state was founded in 1949. Um, so that's 12 years uh, where there wasn't a Berlin Wall. And people often often forget that that's quite a substantial chunk of the 41 um, years that the state existed. Um, and during that time, you could still leave legally and safely. Um, and people did in their droves. Um, so initially, um, there's a long border, of course, which, again, people strangely forget about sometimes. Um, that there is actually the Berlin Wall is, is in Berlin and in Berlin only. It sort of shuts off West Berlin um, against its, its communist surroundings, makes it like a little capitalist island. That, that's what the Berlin Wall does. Whilst there is a long land border between East and West Germany as well, which is sometimes called the Green Border, um, because it is in you know fields and woods and um, literally in the, in the countryside. Well, um, Katja Hoyer, Beyond the Wall, A History of East Germany, um, go pick up a copy. Go check it out from your library. A really fascinating story you tell here. And Katya, thanks so much for your time.